Welcome to the Indian Science Show. A podcast where we talk about Indian stuff, science, and different worldviews. I'm Turtle. And I'm Annie. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the show. Then the sun was blotted out, and darkness covered the land and water. Terrified, the people ran to the hills to get away from the pounding water. For two days the earth rumbled and quaked. Then a rain of ashes began to fall. It fell for weeks. At last, the ashes stopped falling. The waters of the lake became quiet, and the Indians came down from the hills. But soon the lake began to disappear. Dry land rose where the water had been. Chief Lot, 1890. It was the biggest flood in the world for which there is geological evidence. It was so vast a geological event that the mind of a man could only conceive of it, but could not prove it until photographs could be taken from the Earth's satellites. Norman McLean, A River Runs Through It. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. And before we actually name this geologic event that we just talked about in these two quotes, we want to put a call to action out to all of our listeners to just guess. And we want to hear what your guesses are for what this is. What is Norman talking about here? What is Chief Lot talking about in these quotes? And if you want to, you can write it down. But when you have your answer, go post it on our social media. You can put it on our Instagram or our Facebook page or send us an email, whatever you feel like, because we're curious what people would guess. So, Andy, do you want to do the big reveal? Yes, because it's my favorite geological event. And it's my second favorite, so <laughs> this is Andy's thing. It's Glacial Lake Missoula, which is, I guess, a lake, a flood, and many other things that end up getting tied into this multi-spanning geological event, which yeah. has confused a lot of geologists. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. It's, it's confused me a lot. But once you get some of the basic concepts down, it's actually, it's not that confusing. What is confusing is when you start trying to understand the methods. And sorry, I should have my phone off. And you start trying to understand how they gather the data and some of the contentions that are there with how that happens, which is stuff that we're going to get into in this episode. We'll talk about the data, the stats, how it's gathered, and some of the history of this crazy huge lake slash flood slash geologic event. Because it is, it's connected to the Ice Age and the ending of the last Ice Age, which is... So you have to go back 17 to 12,000 years ago. Yeah. And so, yeah, before we get into sharing our opinions on the methods and getting into the nitty gritty of the science on this, which involves multiple disciplines, we're just going to share the raw facts as it's understood by geologists today. And well, I don't know. Some of them disagree kind of with the numbers. Yeah, these are the <laughs> yeah. numbers. I guess you, maybe I should call them the mainstream. Yeah. The mainstream facts, because facts can change. 
<laughs> well, I think people take that word too seriously. Facts is not that big of a deal, but the word theory, that's, an, that's a, I think, a more serious word. It's harder so to change you, theories yeah. than facts. So, yeah, go ahead and take us back. Any, how far do we got to go back to, to even start talking about this? Well, some people, 17,000 years ago. Which, man, I can't even. So, definitely no cell phones, no computers, no cars, no paved roads, no roads. No plows. No plows. No donkeys. No donkeys. And then you got to go to present day standpoint where there's this Purcell lobe of ice just creeping, creeping south. It's going to block up the Clockwork River right there. I always thought it was further south, but the, yeah, that, what was that called? Name of that lobe? I forget. Purcell. Purcell. So is it yeah. uh, what we mean when we say it's like lobe? a trench? Um, you're gonna make me. It's like a. Yeah, if you've ever seen pictures of glaciers coming out of mountains, it's kind of what we're talking about. But it's a little teeny sliver of the those giant glaciers that were thousands of feet thick that covered North America it's during a, the age. It's a curved project. It's a curved projection or appendage of a continental glacier. So this one was part of the, why did I just forget it? We just talked about it. Oh, the, um, yeah, the Cordillerian. The Cordillerian yeah. ice sheet. I get that one mixed up with the Laurentide. Every time I try to remember this almost, <laughs> unless I'm looking right at a map, which I happen to be. So Right, I know. So I'm I, looking I at one that. too. Yeah, and I've seen other maps where they have them combined, where the Laurentide is the huge one that covered mm-hmm. mo- pretty much everything east of the Continental Divide, and the Cordillerian is a smaller one that covered everything west of the Continental Divide. And the Continental Divide is the high point of the Rocky Mountains that come, goes all the way from Canada down through the United States, and uh, I think it even goes into Mexico. I might be wrong about that. But the Rocky Mountains, is it's one of the longest mountain chains in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I don't know if it goes. Maybe it goes into Mexico. Yeah, I'll have to look that up. But so then. This, yeah, this ice sheet, it that's right when it started melting, right? Right around seventeen or 18,000 years ago. Yep. Was when, it's right during the last of it. Yeah. And then, so not only was this a catastrophic flood, once this ice sheet broke, this ice dam here at Sandpoint. It happened somewhere between 40 and 100 times, spanning 2,000 to 7,000 years. Yeah, that seems like a big margin to be working with there. But then you have to remember, how old is Earth? Four billion years. So I think if you can get it within 5,000 years... Yeah. Uh, so, what would that ratio be? Five, so, a five thousand year, five thousand to three point five billion. Yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty a good small one. ratio. Yeah, it's a small one. And then these floods reshaped, just like we said, the whole Pacific United States from Montana all the way to Pacific Ocean. You can see evidence for these mega floods. That happened. 
like there's mega floods, catastrophic floods. I don't know. I, I heard every type of flood. They this was a giant flood. Yeah, and that word catastrophic is also something we'll get a little more in detail on because we're going to compare that to what another word called uniformity. And these are kind of the two opposing ideas of how geology plays out over long periods of time. And yeah, the but the to put this into perspective a little bit, there's only one other flood event that's comparable that they've discovered and that is over in Russia, right? And it wasn't even mm-hmm. much bigger. No, I think the discharge was maybe one million more. But like like we said, this was a long time ago. You could give or take a million, probably be okay. Yeah, so what was it? This one was 17 million gallons? Square feet, square cubic feet per... Well, we got the numbers right here. I don't know. I'm not, not, not looking at this. It was a picture. I mean, I can see it. Like it said 17 plus or minus 3 million M square M cubed second. So I guess that would be cubic meters per second would be the term, right? So 17 million plus or minus 3 million cubic meters per second. That's actually, yeah. and so yeah, if this other one was 18 million, yeah. I mean, they very likely could either, it could be, have even been bigger than the Russian one. It could have, yeah. And yeah, with the, all and these numbers, there's pretty big error margins, and we'll kind of explain a little bit that a little later on why that is, what mm-hmm. causing that. But the point is, is this is crazy, huge. I mean, no matter what way you look at it, it was a massive event that we have no massive. precedent for in written history. Mm-hmm. But we do have oral histories, and there are interests. I mean, there's the biblical flood stories. So there's, there are stories about floods in written and oral histories around the planet. And this is a really interesting topic for a lot of people, for the yeah, floods and how they're related. Yeah, because humans were around at this time frame in North America. So there's a great chance that they could have seen Lake Missoula. They could have seen the event, had stories about the events. Yeah. And there are a lot of, there are some authors that have compiled some of these stories over the years. And and some of them are ethnographers, other people like Vine Delore Jr. have written books with chapters about it. And it's even in the Bible. I've, found the section on it there i forget what the name of this section is but in the king james version of the bible it's on page six and it's what is it chapter six verse yeah chapter six verse one and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them that's like the beginning of where it starts talking about what kind of why did God decided to flood the earth. And they definitely talk about it like it's a catastrophe in the Bible. Yeah. But that, that doesn't mean it was this event because this was kind of localized. If you're look at things um, globally, this is mm-hmm. a pretty local event. Oh yeah. Very, very local. Um, so if you can imagine, all right, turtle, here you go. So, 
have you seen how tall the Empire State Building is? Yes, not in person. I've seen it compared to stuff on graphs and stuff, but okay. Have you seen so, it in person? I have. Yeah, okay. I've seen it in person. I've so seen I'm, the I'm Statue of Liberty now. in person. Do you have? Because I know. So there's different comparisons. Yeah. What? How, I don't so have many, that. I don't have yeah, that one. <laughs> that's, I think, a more epic one. How many Statue of Liberties? I I think I'm remembering seven. Is that right? I don't know. I didn't look that one up. Statue, or I mean, uh, Empire State Buildings. That's what I meant. Yeah, that's what I meant to say. <laughs> well, there's two. Two of them. So okay. You, so maybe that's two of them. seven Statue of Liberties or two Empire State Buildings. Which is 2,000 feet. 2,000 feet. And perhaps, if you want to look at it, there might have been some below as well. But 2,000 feet was as high as the stand. Yeah. So, and this dam, the dam we're talking about is not like a fancy uniform looking dam, like uh-huh. people see in pictures and in the movies. It's a, this ice lobe that we were talking about earlier. And yeah. And it, it was, when you yeah. look at it, what it might've looked like on maps, it does not look like a dam. It just no. looks like this big, like big lob of ice growing off of the South end of this even bigger lob of ice. Yeah. Cause some people say it was 10 to 30 miles long as well so not only 2,000 feet high but also 10 to 30 miles long wow and it backed up water yeah and it backed up water for 200 miles east of the dam so that's where we live we are part of one of these little cool and it's not like a uniform lake either it's got a lot of little little fingers little outlets Yes, it and um, it's almost like when you see maps of Scandinavia and you see all the fjords that go into the um, like Norway and that coastline, or if you look at maps of Scott, like the western coast of Scotland and all those locks and stuff and those gigantic fingers that come in from the ocean. That's what the map of this lake looks like when you look at it. There's all these slivers that are creeping off of the lake going north south east west and into all these river valley or yeah some of them are river valleys other ones are glacial valleys but all these different valleys here in the mountains and we're on where the i think we're on the most northern one aren't we besides the where the the dam actually was i think so yeah yeah here in the flathead the valleys. mission yeah. yeah and so at the largest extent Lake Missoula's depth exceeded 2,000 feet and may have held 600 cubic miles of water. So that is as much as Lake Erie and Lake Ontario combined. Hey everyone, we want to take a quick break from the show to let you know that we're starting a new segment on our monthly research episodes where we highlight reviews or plug something we like or find important for our listeners. Today we are going to read two reviews from listeners. Thank you for the support and reviews. It helps with getting the word out for the podcast as well as letting us know how we are doing. Yeah, and we want to apologize also for taking so long to respond. It's been a long, crazy year, but we still want to show our gratitude. So, any, can you read the first one? Or, no, actually, um, was I, I was going to read this one, right? 
You were going to read that one, but I could read that one if you want to read the next one. Oh, that's cool. I'll read this one. Uh, okay. This one is from the... It's at Samio416. Thanks, by the way, for dropping your Twitter handle. It's been a long while. This one was left back in November of 2019. And it was a five-star review. Thanks for that. Mm -hmm. And it was titled Indigenous Scientists Discussing Life Between Worldviews. It's a cool title. It is. It's kind of what we wanted. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks, Samio416. Samio says... Really interesting engagement between Western and indigenous approaches to science. Cosmology sometimes, parentheses, always, close parentheses, in collision. Well done. Engaging the indigenous relational worldview and spirituality in contrast with the sometimes limiting assumptions of enlightenment philosophies of science. Wow, that's a... That's a, that's a good one. That's like a statement you would say. Definitely yeah, a, yeah, very philosophical. Yeah. <laughs> very philosophical. I'm going to say oh, yeah, that def- again. Definitely. Um, so he says, well done. Engaging the indigenous relational worldview and spirituality in contrast with the sometimes limiting assumptions of the enlightenment philosophy of science. <laughs> also funny and informative. Yeah, yeah. I bring Samuel that funny side. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That was a good that's one. That's a good one. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, that's really good. I think that's definitely highlights especially what you like to focus on is how philosophies of science definitely contradict some of the spirituality and indigenous worldviews. Well, I really more see it like it's just good at doing different things that, Mm -hmm. uh, and it sucks at doing other things. And that's pretty much why we come up with all the different disciplines that we come up with, because you can't really hire a chemist to go and do interviews with people and do social science research and really know what they're doing. And they may not be very good at it because they got into chemistry and probably want to spend all their time in a lab anyway. So it's it's just one of those things, I think, that uh, there's a lot of benefits to enlightenment philosophy. But mm-hmm. there, it took a long time for him to even implement it in Europe. And so when you look at history, it, it look, kind of almost looks like it contradicts itself. But it's really just it lagged a long way. And now uh, that's where a lot of modern ideals come from is the Enlightenment philosophies of Europe. It mm-hmm. just took them for hundreds of years to actually do what they said was they were going to do, basically. Because, yeah, they've been talking about what's right and wrong and what we take for granted for hundreds of years. And it, most people just didn't really believe in it for a long time. Anyways, that's, a, I, I'm, yeah, it sounds like the Samio 416 might be just almost as long winded as I can be. So with that being said, um, we have go ahead. one more review. Yeah. You can go ahead and read your, the review. Um, so we have one more review from HL Woodlit from January 30th of 2020. Um, not quite a year, but I mean, we are pushing it. Sorry about that. Um, and it's titled Love It. Um, so it says, um, found it during a search for Robin Kimmer, who is one of my favorite authors, but all the other episodes are good too. Also love the name Indian Science. Yeah. Indian. We took hard for the name. We, we thought hard about the name. Yeah, we did. So I'm glad people are noticing that. Mm-hmm. Indian science. Uh, 
it took us a while it took us probably like two or three weeks and we're meeting multiple i mean we saw each other pretty much every day Mm -hmm. we talked about it for quite a while Mm -hmm. and we we came up with all sorts of ideas and then we finally i don't even remember how we decided to name it indian science show do you remember that like the moment or the day or the conversation we were at my apartment in syracuse remember when we had that table like set up oh yeah where um i think we were talking about aliens i don't, I don't know why it always talked about aliens that's indian um, science 101 man aliens alien ancient aliens ancient aliens well, yep thank exactly you, thank you uh they thank didn't you leave both. their twiddle yeah. twitter twiddle they didn't leave <laughs> they didn't no. leave their twitter handle but thank you very much if you're listening now. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And really Robin Kimmerer is one of our favorite Yeah, authors. and I bet Robin appreciates it too. Yeah. Unless she's got another fan out there. So if yeah. you're listening, so. Robin, we appreciate that you came on the show so we could appreciate this comment, mm-hmm. this review. Mm-hmm. And it was five stars also, wasn't it? Yes, it was five yeah, stars. Five star review. I, I'm still, I still love that we got that one. That we one, got a one, one star review. Yeah, we got a one star review. And it, it makes me feel official. Like we're now an official <laughs> podcast because we have we, <laughs> we have, have a negative stars. review, yeah. So it's not just the perfect 5.0. Yep, we have 4.7. But if you would like to leave a review, um, I know Apple Podcast has their review section. Um, you can leave a feedback form that talks about it, right? I don't know much about that feedback email. Neither do I, but I know iTunes is where the reviews at. Like if you yeah. can get on iTunes and you leave us a review, that really helps a lot. Yes. All right. Well, look forward to this on the monthly occasion for our research episodes. And uh, I think we're ready to go back to our regular scheduled conversation. Yes. Thanks for the reviews. Make sure you go and leave us another one. Back to the show. Yeah. And that's I wonder, you know, I'm thinking now, I wonder if those lakes were bigger in the past. I bet they were too. Probably. That's probably going on current size. And so there was actually quite a few of these glacial lakes all over the continental United States. And like the Great Lakes were formed by this pretty much the same process of these gigantic ice sheets melting. Mm-hmm. And over here, the difference is, is this one flooded out. There was this, this a phenomenon where this dam broke and all that water rushed out into the ocean. And it was such a crazy, huge event that they've even found Montana sediments and rocks 10,000 feet, feet down off the continental shelf. Mm-hmm. So they've they've found evidence for this at the bottom of the ocean, which is nuts. Makes a lot of sense though, because I mean I've heard of sand. Yeah. They find sand from the Sahara in the Amazon jungle and stuff. <laughs> so it's not too far fetched. But still, when you think about it, how yeah. far it's got to travel, mm-hmm. and then which I mean makes sense because the surface area covered three thousand square miles, and the shoreline attained an elevation of forty two hundred feet in elevation. 
Yeah. Did you ever have to, or you, you, yeah, you probably didn't do any GIS classes at SKC, did you? No, but I did it at Haskell. Yeah. So we got to do a cool project where we mapped that, that 4,200 feet thing and saw that it's cool. for the bison range, the highest points in the bison range were just barely sticking out. Oh yeah. High points, like barely, um, I think it's like 400 feet something. Mm-hmm. And then it's for you 200 feet. Yeah. So when I do my night drive, I always think about that because there's a sign that says the highest point of Glacier Lake Missoula. It says 4,200 feet. Yeah. So you can look down and you see the Mission Valley. And it's crazy to think that all of that was underwater because it was so big. It wasn't ice. So it was water. Just imagining like how crazy those waves were. And then we talked up like, I don't know when we'll talk about the rock flower. And like, just imagining the color that that would be. Yeah. I love that painting yeah. that's up there. And, but I uh, just, but it was an ice age. So there was probably lots of ice floating ice glacier, <laughs> uh, not glacier, but um, icebergs. Oh yeah. I bet you the weather was gnarly. <laughs> so uh, because windy. All the, yeah. The wind that gets generated by the lake and stuff. And, mm-hmm. They have crazy uh, and lake that, effect. Uh, yeah. And the storms and stuff. Ooh, man. Jeez. Yeah. Their lake effect. I can only imagine what that kind of lake effect is like. And anyone that lives over in the Northeast or around Syracuse knows what we mean. Right. Oh, gosh. And imagine a lake effect from a lake twice the size of the great, one of the great, great lakes during the ice age. That's nuts. So the, yeah, two, I didn't really find how many um, Statue of Liberties I'll look later. So I might be wrong on the seven, but that's nuts. Two, Two Empire, Two State, Empire State Buildings, State buildings ta- stacked end to end. Yep. It's almost tr- like trying to imagine the Himalayas by looking at our mountains. Right. Because you just can't. Yeah. yeah. It's tough to actually really truly grasp the that kind of those epic numbers and sizes. Did you talk about how, how many Amazon rivers it equals? Not yet. I was getting there. Yeah. So, so dams also tend to be a little, you know problematic in certain areas um yeah like uh weak spots or uh. weak spots so they suffer minor leakages so probably caused a weakening of both of the dam's base where other material immediately went underneath it um and then also is being tugged upward by its natural buoyancy um because ice is lighter than water which is something that needs to be thought about of like how many times this can break. And that's, a, that's always kind of weirded me out that ice, the solid version floats on the liquid version. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it was all of those combined. And, you know, once the dam was breached, um, it probably happened. Um, it wasn't a minor break. <laughs> Like it, it shows that there was enough ice that was bashed out of the way in a short period of time. Um, that yeah, it uh, the volume has been calculated to be between eight and ten cubic miles per hour, which amounts to about ten times the, the combined flows of all the rivers on the planet Earth. Whoa! I, I didn't hear that one. That's crazy. I heard that one, but it's also they also say that there was. The floodwaters ran the forest equal to sixty Amazon rivers. Yeah, which I haven't that's, seen one. Yeah, and that's the that's the biggest river system in the world, isn't it? Yeah. So okay. I mean that that is like ten times 
I mean, it does make sense. 10 so, times the amount, yeah. yeah. If it's 60 times Amazon, that does make yeah. sense. Yeah. And then floodwaters Maybe. moved at, yeah. So they were approximately 65 miles per hour and emptied Glacial Lake, Missoula, probably within 48 hours of reaching the dam. Wow. Yeah. And so it's just, so for, it takes thousands of years for it to slowly get to a point and then boom. Well, it's, it, it's kind of like a cascading yeah. effect, huh? Once. Well, and I wonder if it was melting so fast and because one of them predicted that it could have been 50 years in every, this flood was occurring. That it was occurring every 50 years? Yeah. So it actually filled up and refroze every 50 years? Well, if it's part of the ice sheet, I, and it was at the end of the glacial period. So things mm-hmm. were probably melting, probably breaking off. I imagine that while this was the whole 30 miles long, 2,000 feet above was probably one time. It probably was the big one. And then after that, I imagine there were little other brick blockages. Yeah, yeah because... It may not uh, have been that extent. And some of the evidence for that is those strand lines are all mm-hmm. at different different levels. Yeah, so this one was the highest. It was So it probably was the very first one. And then everyone else other than that, yeah. So if you look at um, Mount Jumbo which is in Missoula, where Glacial Lake Missoula got its name, you can see the shorelines and um, the very highest one is the one where they're saying the 4,200 feet in elevation. Hmm. And then everyone other than that is less and less and less and not as drastic, but still catastrophic in any nature. Yeah, every time I try thinking about what it would be like, I always think of movies right and so i don't it's think like, it, yeah i don't think i can I, mean, I have an accurate picture have you seen uh oh what was that one where they were in new york city and there was that giant wave i think there's um, a few movies with giant waves hitting new york city is it like, the main one i'm thinking of is maybe either deep impact it's or, with jake gyllenhaal oh that's right uh the day after tomorrow the day after tomorrow yeah and there was and then it froze them Yep. Yeah, that that was an interesting movie. And it was all caused by um like a bunch of cold water spilling into the northern Atlantic, right? I think that was the mm. mechanism they were saying is what caused this and then it caused like a a whole cascading effect and a new oh, gosh. ice age all of a sudden. Yeah. New ice and age. and that's kind of one of the differences between some of the history of the development of this is the difference between the uniformitarian look at mm-hmm. geology and the catastrophic look at geology yes. and that's i mean it's kind of still we're still trying to understand that to this day and from my perspective it does seem like both there's both pros mm-hmm. going on and uh, there's it just uh it, it's weird to me that scientists try to dis, try to like look at things black and white as if it's one or the other. It's either uniformitarian or it's catastrophic. There's no in between. And they were kind of fighting with each other for quite a while. And the guy that came up with uniformitarianism is the, was one of uh, Charles Darwin's mentors. His name is Charles Lyell. So Charles Lyell and Charles Darwin um, that contributed a bunch to modern evolution and geology. Mm-hmm. And it was that uniformitarianism that that was the it's I think there's actually a principle of uniformity 
that came mm-hmm. together. Before that, a lot of people dependent on another guy's work. His name is George or Georges Cuvier. And he was the one that really pushed the catastrophic look. And he wanted to show that species, he, one of his main points was that species don't change, that they are, the form that they are created in is the form that they stay until they go extinct. And these catastrophic events is what causes their extinction. Whereas Lyell was kind of having the alternative viewpoint that no, actually extinction and, and species can occurs over long periods of time with small incremental changes that are the same now as they were in the past. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think it's both. I think it's both. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think it's sense. both, for just sure. Just based off of studying this event, right? Because mm-hmm. some processes took thousands of years. Yeah. And then in a couple of weeks or even a couple of days, yeah. boom, just completely changed, <laughs> total different environment. And uh, man, the just trying to imagine being there and seeing, even if you weren't at the front of it, seeing the dam break, you would right. hear it. You'd feel you the it. earth mm-hmm. and then seeing all that water disappear and oh, then yeah. like a whole, like that would be almost, that'd be scary. I think. Right. Well, that's like, was your story or one of the stories that we have where it yeah, talks it is about, creepy, huh? yeah, where it talks about islands becoming mountains. Yeah. That all first this, yeah. From chief lot talks about, and what's interesting is the, the contemporary slash, what would be the the popular knowledge on this subject doesn't really talk about any volcanic events that caused it. They always attribute no. it to the melting of this dam, this ice dam. In this quote, though, he alludes to some volcanic stuff because he talks about the sun being blotted out. Like, uh, he says, then the sun was blotted out and darkness covered the land and the water. And the people were running for the hills because the water was pounding. Mm-hmm. And the earth was rumbling and there's ash raining down for weeks. And then eventually it stopped and the waters calmed. And, but after that, the, uh, the big lake disappeared and dry land rose where the water had been. Yeah. So like, I wonder if that ash could be like dust. Like, do you think that much water pulsing through their boulders, like, car-sized boulders blowing through areas do you think ash could be dust it very well it, i mean it could be and that i mean that's one of the question that goes questions that doesn't really get addressed in this book that i want to talk about where um so there's a book by vine deloria jr who was like a hero of mine growing up and i loved his books and i still do and I hate to say it, but I, I really don't agree with him on these points he brings up. And he's yeah. contending the geologic story by using um, by using oral stories, which is really awesome. And I love that perspective that he takes in this book. Is his, Most of his evidence that he's relying on are oral traditions. Mm-hmm. And he's using them as evidence against some of these geologic concepts, which is I love. But what I don't like is that he seems to be, he's making big leaps of logic. And the first one that he talks about that I, so he, that's actually where I got this quote from, this Chief Lot quote, was Vine Deloria's book, Red Earth, White Lies. And in this book, in, on page 198, 
he talks about Ella Clark, who was somebody that recorded an interview or recorded the story from Chief Lot, and it was in 1890. So it's, I mean, it's it's quite a while ago. And he talked about this that this story, and Vine Deloria then goes on to kind of describe some more about how this shows that the the geologic story isn't entire may not be the entire truth. But what I I, I don't agree though because what he says here is that um, if these floods were periodic, Mount Spokane would not have appeared to have suddenly grown out of the ground. Rather, the Indian tradition would have involve a story in which the spirit of the mountain spent its time traveling back and forth between our world and the world below, struggling with a monster that was inhibiting its growth. The fact that Mount Spokane did not become the subject of continuing stories about rising and falling argues in favor of one large flood and the permanent draining of the lake instead of the 40 to 100 events that they Yeah. So... Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's a good yeah. that's a good point, but it's a big leap. And I would I'd say it's far from proof. Well, and I also think that it And your story could it, be equally as likely based off yeah. the same information. Yeah. Well, well, and I also think that it doesn't take into account um a a 5,000 year span period. Mhm. You know, like, yeah, I think this was exactly what you were getting at. And maybe that story he's referring to was the last event, mm-hmm. the last time it drained out. Yeah. And so he he doesn't really address any of that in the, this chapter. And you know what? I, I very well could have missed it somewhere in another chapter. But I would think that exploring this, if you're going to, this is something that I was taught fairly early on is, and not, you should never leave readers with unanswered questions. And I had a bunch of unanswered questions once I got done reading this chapter, specifically about the, that point. But he makes two other points that, again, the, that kind of doesn't really, he doesn't really address some of these questions that we're bringing up here. The, the second one, he says, is um, the Spokane tale clearly marks this event as being triggered by severe volcanic eruptions and provides a time frame several weeks of falling ashes before the dam breaks and the lake drains. If the lake was as large as the Indian account suggests that it took many days to travel the length of it, then the waters were impounded by solid rock and not a tenuous ice lobe that itself might have been melting in rapid fashion. And so there, there again, I mean, yeah, it does make sense. I mean, that very well could be the case, but there's also, it could be other things as well. It could I mean, it just, that doesn't seem like solid logic to say just because the, it was a large lake and it took many days to travel that it had to be solid rock mm-hmm. or just because it was a potentially volcanic eruption that it had to be solid rock. The dam. Mm-hmm. That doesn't, it doesn't line up because it, I mean, it doesn't, dis, it's not falsifiable for one and it doesn't falsify the other stories. Mm-hmm. It doesn't discredit the ice dam theory. Right. Because also, um, and the third point was he's using some geo, uh, he talked to a, an engineer, and the engineer says uh, an ice dam wouldn't be strong enough to act like a, a what do you call it, a ditch gauge, to act like a ditch gauge in this case, because it would take, um, it would not be able to take that pressure. 
but I'm also wondering like, is ice really comparable to concrete? Do, does this engineer really know the physical properties of ice? He doesn't really right. get into that. So what kind of yeah. engineer is this? I didn't look up this engineer, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. But like I said, you should never leave readers with unanswered questions. And I just don't agree with those three points he brings up. They're good points, though. Equally as valid as the points we're talking about. And But the only thing I don't like is he doesn't explore the other possibilities. I think that's my main gripe. Not that right. I disagree with him. It's just I don't like that he didn't explore the other equally as plausible possibilities. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think we're always into integrating more than one yeah. worldviews into an area. And I think those oral tradition and stories are important. Yeah, and I should also remember that he's not a scientist. He, he was a great scholar. An amazing mm-hmm. writer, but his specialty was history and law, religious stuff, politics. So in a certain sense, he could be considered a scientist, depending on how broadly you want to use that definition. But the kind of science where we're talking about the falsifiable type stuff where you're mm-hmm. gathering data, doing analyses and stuff. He, I, don't, he's, I don't think that was a, the major body of his work. That doesn't mean it's unimportant because he drives questions. He drives the seeking of answers. Because I would never have asked a lot of these questions if I didn't come across right. those three points where I was like, huh, got me scratching my chin. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, one of the main reasons I really love Find Deloria is he got me answering questions by putting things into words that I never had the words for. And I've heard that uh-huh. from other people, too. They really like Vine Deloria because it seemed like they, he was able to tell the story that they had in their head, but uh-huh. they just didn't know how to tell it. Right. Yeah. I mean, writers are good like that. I think they encourage you to step outside traditional writing, Mm -hmm. which is appreciated in especially science writing. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of a big problem. A lot of scientists suck at writing. Yeah. They're great at writing technically, making it sound all technical and sciencey, but as far as that communicating complex ideas, especially to the public, not so so great. Not so good. So, yeah, yeah, we kind of got in, we we pretty much covered all the main facts, all the main kind of hard numbers. There's some more, but um, I don't want to, I think I'm going to start getting confused if we start talking too much numbers. There's there's some terminology, though, that goes along with this that helps tell the story in more depth and mm-hmm. and helps yeah. explain some of the localized effects that this had in different ecosystems and stuff. Yeah. But before we get into those, though, I, I would like to go over the main pieces of, pieces of evidence for why they figured out, or not why, but how they figured out that this giant flood event happened in the first place. And the very first one is why they named it Lake Missoula, mm-hmm. because that's where they found the first strand lines. Shorelines. Or there, they people saw them before, but that's where they first identified that this was caused yeah. by water. By water. And so, if you ever you're ever in Missoula, Montana, just look up towards the giant M on the side of the hill, and you'll see them. You just mm-hmm. kind of got to look at it with, you know, when you're looking at something and you're not really focused in on one spot, but you kind of have that soft focus and you look at the whole thing. Try doing that 
if you know what I'm talking about, and you'll mm-hmm. and the strand lines will pop out, boom, and it looks just like shoreline, a shoreline. Yep, and that's what. Uh, also, if you go to the Mission Valley area, those um, shorelines as well um, is probably the first mention of them was in the Mission Valley, and that was recorded by a geologist T. C. Chamberlain in 1886, and he noted that it. Um, there are faint water marks surrounding the hills, and it. Um, he reports describing Scotland's parallel roads of Glenroy, um, and they. That's another ice lake in Scotland. Hmm. Um, and so, so he was able. So Missoula's got the credit for it. Yeah, even though it's they, actually they, the Mission Valley, and it was a geologist. Yeah, just like a century. Before, Before, because I think they're talking about someone. Well, Brett's was in the 1920s. Yeah. And this and guy was generally late considered 1800s. the first guy. <laughs> but the same with the story in Vine Deloria's book. That was 1890. Yeah. And he makes a point to say that it was before Brett's, which is kind of the first guy to quote unquote officially discover this stuff in Missoula. And I think well, that, like a yeah. lot of science, there was other people before. Mm-hmm. It just, they just weren't the ones to publish it and make it well-known it's it's a weird how science and history works like that right a lot of so, inventions yeah. it's a very similar story so the shorelines kind of kicked it off but yeah. then um you know as people started to understand what it was um it actually led to a whole lot of other landforms yeah so and they that's, found, yeah. and that's where all these words come from right and that's because more than 50 cubic miles of earth and rock were removed and deposited downstream. So it changed like clay loose soils. Um, 50 cubic miles. That's Yeah. So prime farmland was transformed into scab lands. Gravel bars, some of them were 400 feet high, were created. Large boulders crafted by ice raft were deposited hundreds of miles from their origins. Mm-hmm. Um, some as far as Oregon Central, Williamette Valley. Yeah. And those are all the little puzzle pieces that they used to mm-hmm. put all this together into this big picture idea of a gigantic flood that is dang near incomprehensible to humans. Mm-hmm. The So the one that, as a, I, th- I think one of the doctors that studies it now, the one that said, said cr- that cracked the case of Lake Missoula was Camus Prairie those ripple marks. And when we say ripple marks, it's, this is really fascinating how they, um, the ripple marks are. So we, we see the same stuff in small streams and rivers. They have the same ripple marks and they can use these to then calculate what, how much water it would take to make, create them. So the ripple marks in Camas Prairie, some are like, 10 feet high and from crest to crest it's like 30 meters isn't it i think They're so just massive you can, and you can see them from space you can see them from space yeah yeah which is so crazy because when you're in camas prairie where traditionally salish go to pick bitterroot or harvest bitterroot um i they don't seem that crazy and then when you look at it from the satellite it's insane how many ripples there are yeah it looks like you're on it looks like a, a Washboard. sandy beach or something yeah the it's they, crazy just like a sandy beach under the water right in the shallow mm-hmm. part and so that was a, that was the one that they 
they, they say cracked the case. So if you want to, if you're curious, go to Google Earth and type in Camas Prairie, Montana. And you'll see them. It's pretty cool looking. So the, that was, so the, the first one was the strand lines and then Camas Prairie. And then it kind of snowballed after that. And then they discovered these things called rhythmites, which are just mm-hmm. patterns in the rocks, which were created by algae blooms in the summer. And then those laid down dark organic layers, which were then followed by uh, lighter layers, which were the, the it's just, so it's a, a pattern of dark and light yeah. layers caused by this seasonal blooming of algae. And these algae, they lived off of this stuff called rock flower, which was just the pulverized rocks that was coming down off of the glacial meltwater out of the, out of the, these giant continent sized glaciers. And so the, they explain that as creating this brilliant greenish blue watercolor. And if anybody's ever been to Montana or you've been anywhere, there's glaciers, glaciers or high mountain lakes with that are being fed by glaciers. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. That, that color is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. And to imagine that color being across a lake hundreds of miles along that's a thousand feet deep yeah that's like that's the kind of stuff that's crazy it makes me think of these adventure stories about these fate like these um uh, what are those those fictional worlds it seems Mm -hmm. like a fictional world when when i try to imagine it it does so that's the that was the third one that and slowly they so with the strand lines the ripple marks the rhythmites slowly they started to piece it together and then they were able to find these erratics and these gravel bars that any saying and these are huge they're mm-hmm. so huge that people didn't know what they were until we started until they started to put all the pieces together mm-hmm. and then they could start explaining what they were by looking back at this major flood event so one of the other big ones was Eddie Narrows. So if you're ever traveling through Montana, you go check out Eddie Narrows and you'll see along the canyon walls, you'll see what the flood did. That it uh-huh. ripped through there. And like Annie was saying earlier, uh, some places at like 65 miles an hour. Uh-huh. And if you think of what happens when you take and put your thumb over a garden hose, that same thing was happening during in these narrows. And so they that's another place they found a bunch of evidence is in these narrows. They're able to do some really cool geology math that I don't know about <laughs> and figure out some some of the forces involved in creating these landscape features. And it's just it's crazy to to try and imagine all that water getting focused into a little canyon and just because although it was huge, it was a thousand feet deep. It was basically like a river. Mm-hmm. And when it reached these places, just like in a normal like a quote like a, a human-sized river uh it would create rapids so imagine rapids in a thousand feet oh, that's oh that's so crazy ah, that's i still can't picture it yeah so i i would be scared too i'd probably be running for the hills running from right? the, the rumbling water man <laughs> the pounding water yeah that's yeah i was like think about like what it would sound like just yeah just what 250 feet of earth just being uprooted mm-hmm. <laughs> have you ever um heard a earthquake been in an earthquake and 
heard what those sound like? I've been in it. I don't really know. It's uh, like. Oh, okay. Yeah. Ever yeah. Hear that? It's yeah. like a really, really deep. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's nothing like it. It's a very unique sound. Uh, how about a sonic boom? You ever hear a sonic, sonic boom? Just off of like YouTube. Okay. I think we might be lucky here. I've heard two of them in my lifetime. Oh, geez. And I didn't know until recently that they're not allowed to go supersonic except for in certain areas, like over the ocean and stuff. But I've heard them in here in Montana. So I realized when I watched that, I thought, so this is an area they're allowed to do sonic booms over. <laughs> like, yeah, those Montanas, they're not going to mind because they're they're, kind of, they're scary. When I first, the first time I heard it, the only thing I can, it sounded like a giant bowling ball landed on top of the house and rolled off the roof. Mm-hmm. That's what oh I thought. Gosh. I was like, what the heck? <laughs> so that, that's what I'm thinking is it's like a uh-huh. mixture of a sonic boom and an earthquake. Mm-hmm. Is that's mm. the only thing I can think of that it might sound like. Oh, yeah. I would definitely. Man. Because, uh, man. Yeah, I don't know what it would I bet sound it was like. loud. I bet it was like, loud. Really loud. Yeah. Yeah. I bet that it was. Because I had, we talked about this about, and it's been brought up a lot before, but thinking if there's fish or animals, mammoths back oh, then. Oh, yeah. You that's know, one of the weirdest things about this is, yeah. um, they haven't found any fossilized evidence mm-hmm. of animals in the lake or plants. Or plants. Except Nothing. for that organic layer, which mm-hmm. they have determined comes from algae. Algae blooms. Yeah. But, so uh, that also yeah, like, leads me. Yeah, that's really strange. Yeah, it also like leads me to believe that it did occur more frequently than every thousand years. Yeah, it if, didn't really allow nothing, the ecosystem to, mm-hmm. yeah. Especially also, like mammals, animals. A lot of the native indigenous fish here, they don't like those that really murky water filled with a lot of minerals and stuff. So that, and I mean, tr- indigenously, there there were no fish in the high mountain lakes. Mm-hmm. They populated those. It was mostly amphibians that dominated up there until they started populating them with fish. So that's an interesting concept. And yeah, they're very likely wasn't fish there or maybe i shouldn't use that word likely it's very possible there wasn't fish for one they haven't found any fossilized evidence of fish being in this huge lake but also the that that mineral high mineral content in the murky water and then that it emptying out periodically right that that also mm-hmm. it's a huge disturbance and this is something like this is like a disturbance equal, ecologists greatest dream and worst nightmare <laughs> at the same time right <laughs> and uh it's so because of that lack of organic matter they they actually couldn't even use carbon 14 dating to date it even though it's relatively recent and it's within the carbon 14 dating time frame that because it, you can only accurately date carbon 14 back to like forty five thousand years or so um but i mean that's within that time frame so it's usually what they would use if they could but the weird, they, that's the weird thing they don't have that evidence so instead what they use is a method called luminescence dating and the the doctor that i was listening to his name is dr larry smith he says he looks at quartz and feldspar and the reasoning for whether you use quartz or feldspar from my understanding which is totally layman's so if don't quote me on this i'm, I'm not an expert in this area but it's it's basically just determined by the content you you mm. look at what's most abundant, mm-hmm. and the way I, that works is the this luminescence dating can uh, it helps it can determine what 
when this particular mineral was last exposed to sunlight or heating or some kind of uh, electromagnetic magnetism of um, radiation last time it got exposed to radiation and so by looking at that and doing their math and understanding radioactive decay which again i I don't understand. I've never done this understand. stuff before. Yeah. I, I, I know I've learned a few of these concepts in astronomy class and other places. Mm-hmm. But it's, that's pretty cool that they can actually use physics. They're using physics to try oh. and date these things based off of their knowledge of how these minerals interact with radioactive, or not radioactive, but interact with uh, electromagnetism. Hmm. which is cool because that's what thermal energy is it's, it's electromagnetism fascinating stuff it, so that's that's how the, that's how they figure out some of these dates because they have no they don't have the organic material to date and i think that that's how they do do a lot of the dating for these anthropology things we've talked about in the past too like the looking at the fossils of early humans They've used this similar method, this luminescence dating. And it's actually kind of a big term because there's different methods within luminescence dating. But that's the basic concept is they're looking at minerals to figure out and the last time they were exposed to sunlight or heat. And, uh-huh. and based off of that, they can determine how old this material is. Oh, dang. <laughs> yeah, that's like way above my understanding for sure. <laughs> Yeah, me too. I'm just a lowly ecologist right. <laughs> trying, trying to figure out these complex systems and wicked problems. And we rely on these people's work. We, we oh, yeah. rely on these hard sciences that study mm-hmm. the math and the chemistry and the physics of how things, how the universe works. Mm-hmm. They, we rely heavily on their, on their work. So mm-hmm. thank you. Shout out yeah. to all you hard scientists out there. Thank you. You guys are awesome. All you guys and gals out there are tearing it up. And yeah. Oh, yeah. It's so fascinating to me. I love reading their work, but I barely understand it. I barely yeah. understand it. <laughs> it was way over my head. But it was like, I love trying to learn more. But mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's like the whole point. So that's some of the people that study this. They're geo- geologists, geophysicists, hydrologists paleoecologists and i'm sure there's some that i'm not listing but it's such a huge concept that it it requires some pretty cool math and some interesting things that that are not entirely they're not entirely without their critics especially the established sedimentation rates that's something that Mm -hmm. vine deloria heavily criticizes in his books that they're these, especially geology and evolution, they're almost like bedfellows. They're in kind of, they have this incestuous relationship is the way he phrases it, that mm-hmm. they, they rely on each other. And without each, they, they, it's almost like a, a loop that they get in where geologists are relying on fossil evidence to confirm their, their lithology or their sedimentation rates. And then evolutionary biologists are relying on geologists' lithology and, and their knowledge of sedimentation rates to confirm their their fossil dates and things like mm. that but mm-hmm. he and he does he talks about dating methods 
and this again is some maybe something I missed in his book, but he didn't talk about luminescence dating that I remember. Oh. He criti- he definitely criticized carbon fourteen dating, mm-hmm. rightly so. You can only you can only go back a very a very limited time with carbon dating. But that's I think that's his one point that I do agree with him on is the sedimentation rates because mm-hmm. that can I mean there can be a hurricane or a tornado or a tsunami that lays down bunches and bunches of sediments or, <laughs> or, or uh, inorganic materials. And there would be no evidence for that except for that localized area. So what I, my understanding of it is, is they look all over the world and they try to piece it together and look for these common layers in different parts of the world to try and understand the geologic history of the planet. Mm-hmm. That's so crazy because uh, the geology of the world is so different from place to place. They, but they have found these layers that are similar around. That's part of how they figured out that theory that there was a comet impact that may have wiped out the dinosaurs because they found this layer across the whole planet. And the only thing that can cause that kind of planet-wide uh, commonality would be a massive geologic or a massive astronomical event. So that's what I'm understanding how geologists under, are figuring this stuff out. So it's not like cut and dry. It's not black and white. And that may be where a lot of learning can happen and probably why there's those big time frames, right? Because we were saying it could happen anywhere between a 2000 year time frame and a 7,000 year time frame. Hmm. That's what I'm thinking. That big yeah. discrepancy. That's probably where that comes from is, they have to have some kind of leeway there because there's mm-hmm. because lithology and understanding sedimentation rates yeah is we're still learning about it oh yeah i mean i still think that's a great like that 2000 to 7000 years like to me that seems like yeah a very plausible area like a plausible time frame yeah especially thinking on the scale of hundreds hundreds of millions of years yeah. like geology Operate. exactly well and, and i think yeah yeah so i think partially i that's maybe again why i liked find deloria so much when i was younger is uh the he's taking a contrary point of view mm-hmm. and he may very well have been doing that on purpose to shed light on very seldomly talked about subjects yeah not um, to say he's an expert on all these fields which I didn't know the guy, but I'm assuming he wouldn't claim to be an expert on all these fields because he does, he uses other people's work to outline his ideas. So I, I highly recommend buying Deloria's books, man. He, he will open your perspective to a different way of thinking about science, history, and a lot of stuff. I was uh, trying to find more indigenous stories um, other than buying Deloria ones. And um, yeah. I came across the Cheyenne one. Um, and it talks about how um, there's a separation of northern and southern Cheyenne by great flooding episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, they would talk about how when they went south and after they acquired, um, after they kind of hung out there, they would go north again. And then they would, uh, uh, when there was a great flood in the south, they would go more north. And then after the flood subsided, they would go south again. Um, but it's, this is where it gets interesting. So there's also references to an earthquake, volcano eruption, and another flood that destroyed all 21 of the trees, and they forced people to live in caves. Um, 
and then so this eventually the great medicine felt pity for them and then they had no more floods mm. so maybe that's intertwined with the story that yeah. you talked about where it could have been the last one and then after that that's why he would only experience the one yeah that's interesting and but uh, often volcanic events have a cooling effect but they they also put a bunch of carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide all these different maybe not carbon monoxide i might be getting that wrong but they put a lot they put greenhouse gases in the atmosphere but they also had put ash in the atmosphere and uh yeah i don't know much about how much of an effect the ash has as far as the cooling effect unless it's like surrounding the whole planet but i i do know that volcanic eruptions contribute more to greenhouse gases than humans do by far like just one event yeah. and this could be like yellowstone i'm just like trying to think of yeah that uh, you know that seems like because the last time it erupted was technically before humans evolved oh modern yeah. humans but they were always having earthquakes and yeah that's uh, yeah this is a pretty active part of the yeah. country part of this continent I've been in I've I've been in three earthquakes that I can remember. They weren't hardcore yeah. like what you hear on the on the news, but it was very noticeable. I mean, mm-hmm. it's those ones where it goes like, yeah, like you it's know, almost this. like a slosh board, like <laughs> kind of almost like you're on one of those uh, one of those little machines that vibrates and moves around. Uh-huh. I don't, I'm not sure what those are called, but it like jiggles back and forth, but like on a big level, and it's slower. It's pretty cool, but it's it's pretty creepy also. Um, yeah, and there's also a, a Kootenai story about the origin of the Flathead River, and I wanted to look more into this to see if it's true. I didn't I didn't check my resources? Yeah, so I'm not sure it could be easy. Um, but it talks about a dam breaking free and. Um, creating the Flathead River. Mm. I mean, the dam was created by a, a beaver, but um, one thing I love about like Salish creation stories is I think you understand that it could be a beaver or it could be a dam that was created by something else. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of evidence that shows even, I mean, the Hudson Valley Hudson River wouldn't be there without these giant ice sheets that retreated. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, everything across the the whole northern part of the continent here, it's all really traceable back to these glaciers and the melting of them. Mm-hmm. So it makes a lot of sense. And I mean, that stuff lines up mm-hmm. historically and, um, and the evidence seems to support it. And so now I did find these lakes. There are other lakes. And it makes me wonder if these have more... Have, or where some of those other stories are coming from because mm-hmm. there's these, there's this one lake called the Bonneville Lake. Oh, that's was, that. Yeah. That was the one I think where Salt Lake, where City. Salt lake City, where yeah. the Great Salt Lake comes from. Yeah. And another one was Lahontan and then the Manly or Death Valley Lake. Mm-hmm. And these are huge. They were, uh, and they span all the way from Southern California, all the way up to Oregon and Idaho and East to West from mm-hmm. Eastern California all the way over into Utah and Nevada and stuff. So, 
Oh yeah, that Bonneville one was huge. Yeah, yeah, very. Uh, <laughs> and the some of the information I've here saying that one was three hundred meters deep, which is again equivalent that thousand feet. <laughs> and again, there was a catastrophic flood with that one too. So it's interesting. I wonder how many of these floods have happened around the planet that we just haven't identified yet. Mm-hmm. Probably a lot. Yeah. I just think that, you know, that that's what I find so interesting about Glacial Lake Missoula is that um, it's multiple little pieces that led to this giant story of yeah. one event or one event multiple times throughout thousands of years. But it took a lot of evidences. It took a lot of geological evidence to really start putting a picture together. And then you start having these stories, which also includes a more personal human side to it, not just the strict science perspective of it, but actually putting people there is crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So just briefly, I want to kind of paint a picture for, our listeners about how this might've gone down. So just kind of putting some of these stories of the geologic event that could have precipitated this last event with being a volcanic eruption, just thinking of it as an ice dam. There's this process called calving that you can observe today on glaciers that are, are feeding into a body of water is what happens is that that when the water interfaces with the the ice some pieces of ice will slowly be melting and they'll break off and they'll kind of turn over on themselves and that process will then break off more ice and it'll turn in on itself and it'll and it sometimes will have this cascading effect that will just break off a bunch of ice all at once and that's what they think happened is that as there, these weak points that you're talking about earlier, as those slowly got more and more prevalent, this calving action started happening and it had a runaway effect that eventually just caused the entire, and once it gets to a certain point, the dam is just gone. Even though it's still there, it's, there's no stopping it. And it'll just, the whole thing will just eventually just destroy itself pretty much. Mm-hmm. And and then so that's where when it started and that then all the water started to rush towards the Pacific Ocean and this crazy onrush of water would ha- would have had a roaring sound with a decibel level that would be equivalent to like a jet engine almost maybe even louder if you were right at the headwaters where all this ice and water was just rushing through the these drainages and that's how these things like erratics which are gigantic car house-sized boulders that just get they're they just get shot <laughs> through these cannons like cannonballs and rolled along the bottom and and then other things like the the mega dunes you're talking about earlier where these huge giant piles of gravel and material get deposited in, in these mountain valleys all these things are happening underneath what's equivalent to 60 times the <laughs> Right. The, the output <laughs> of the Amazon River ripping through the the Rocky Mountains, creating mega dunes and these pushing these gigantic rocks out into the uh, out from the mountains. And then these what's what I think 
so the the strand lines are cool and the ripples are cool and these these mega dunes are cool but i think my favorite feature that are the scab lines and these culks which are just the gigantic holes that get just drilled out of the the bedrock it's not even soil it's drilling them out of the bedrock and it happens in days And uh, and yeah, if anybody's ever seen the scablands in eastern Washington, I think they're in Oregon too, right? Mm-hmm. It, they're beautiful, but it's kind of eerie almost because it, it's so mm-hmm. desolate looking. It's barren. And it's, it's so barren yeah. that, they, that they've actually used this as a testing ground for Mars rovers. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's... That, that's how barren this landscape is till this day. 10,000 years, over 10,000 years later. Yeah. Yeah. I suggest that people, and I think you've talked about it, but going to the Ice Age Flood Institute. That's right. Yeah. Because they have the Ice Age Flood National Flood National Geological Trail, and it spans what Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, mm-hmm. and there are different spots where you can see these large events and geological features that Turtle just said. Yeah, um, and you can help them out yeah. too. They encourage mm-hmm. citizen scientists. They do. Uh, they have an app you can download and you can take pictures and geotag it so, mm-hmm. they, have, so they can document all the features as much as possible. And, and it's almost like, uh, what are those called? Um, like geocaching, but also yeah. I'm thinking like a scavenger hunt. Yeah, it, it kind of is. These, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, they have cool maps. And uh, I suggest you start, they label it like I think one through 10. Um, I suggest starting at one, which is kind of the Missoula area, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see how desolate the landscape becomes as you get towards the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. So and just, it, right yeah. after the Scablands is where, where it hits Portland and it mm-hmm. kind of fills up that valley there east of Portland mm-hmm. and then spews out right next to Portland. And like I was saying earlier, it actually reaches depths of 10,000 feet below the, mm-hmm. the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, it is something that like I haven't done yet, but I it's on my bucket list. Yeah, that'd be a fun that. road trip. Yeah, just road you mix that. You can mix that with hitting all the good breweries in the Pacific Northwest. And Could have a do great that time. too. Yeah. Because that's I another suggest, great thing is we've got lots yeah. of good beer over here. I suggest Bong Water from Kettle House. Oh, yeah. That's a, my that's suggestion. a classic. <laughs> I'm not too familiar with any of the new breweries, but I got my favorites. Uh, I like stouts. That's usually the first one I go for. for, all, for the, that's how I test if I like, am I going to like a brewery or not, is I'll try their stout, a warm stout. With that aside. Um, like paleo. Yeah. It, it's, this is such a cool topic, and not many people know about it. They've maybe heard about it from here and there, but they um, – the science behind it is so cool. And the fact that like we've basically anywhere you go, because most of our roads follow the path of this thing. Also, all of our highways. And stuff. I-90. Yeah. yeah. And so almost anywhere you're setting foot or driving your vehicle, unless you're going up in the mountains, very pretty high. Like we said, above 4,200 feet, right? The, mm-hmm. You're driving through the, what used to be underwater. Mm-hmm. Which is crazy. Just like looking around you. Um, man, because you see, you see the Mission Mountains, what, and McDonald Peak's like 10,000 feet above elevation, I think, a little bit over 10. 
Mm-hmm. And the valley floor is like just over 3,000? Yeah. So somewhere in the middle of there. And then you could just imagine, just like you said with the bison range, a little tiny island sticking out there, little tiny of the Salish Mountains sticking out. Yeah. You know, most uh, of it. Yeah. Ashley, you know where Ashley Lake is at? Yeah. I'm thinking there's that big ridge that kind of separates Ashley Lake from the rest of the valley. That kind of oh. comes down, go comes down to the south in front of it. Uh-huh. In between the lakes and the valleys in the valley. I'm wondering if it was about up to that height, the fir- where the first lake was. I'm going to have to mm-hmm. look that up. I don't know what the elevation of the first lake is. But I know there's a a, a good couple thousand feet above it till you get to the peaks. So yeah. I, so I, any- that's about, um, that's kind of where I'm picturing it. So it wasn't mm-hmm. like halfway, but almost halfway up the mountain. Yeah. I mean, it's like when I'm, yeah, I'm like trying to think about it. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it's a, a I, know, I, I, I hope people have been that. to the. I hope people have been to the Mission Valley and they know what the Mission Mountains look like. Yeah, they're like a pretty version of Morador. <laughs> That's yeah, the way I think a little of it. Bit. Yeah, they're like the straight mountain range that seems like it goes on forever, mm-hmm. but the, but instead of being all dark and full of clouds and dead and <laughs> d- just volcanoes, yeah, they're evil, evil looking. <laughs> they look they look pretty and epic and. More like, I think there's another movie that has mountains like that where they're all pretty. I just always think of Lord of the Rings. I know. I can't think <laughs> of anything but Lord of the Rings right now. Maybe like the mountain, the mountains that uh, the Gondor was attached to, that big city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that big city was attached to, yeah. Ministerious. Kind of looks like that. Where yeah. They're, they're very pretty, but also very imposing very imposing yeah so it's saying here that ashley lake is 3950 feet so it would have been above ashley it would have been above that that's nuts (laughs) jeez yeah a couple hundred feet above it (laughs) yeah well i hope this encourages people to go check out what glacial lake missoula did to this area it's insane. Yeah, it's a, it's a great road trip idea. Mm-hmm. It's going to take you through pretty much the whole Pacific Northwest, including, because we're almost not really a Pacific Northwest. We, we're kind of lumped in with the Northwest, but we're we kind of not. Yeah. So it'll take you uh, from Montana all the way through Idaho, Washington, Oregon. And then you'll learn a lot about the, the landscape and mm-hmm. the, the history and if you pair that up with trying to understand some of the indigenous perspectives on this stuff, you get a pretty interesting, like a perspective on the Northwest that isn't really offered by a lot of sources out there. Mm-hmm. So yes, what was the what was that site, that website? Um, I I just had it. It was the, uh, the I something org. I'll find it here. Well, so we'll go and link that site in the. The I, IAFI.org. Yeah, that's right. So go to, go there and you can follow along on there. And they also have links to an app you can download so you could follow along on your phone even. And yeah, and if you're take in, you right to them. Mm-hmm, and if, if you are into um, national park stamps, the national geological ice trail has stamps at many federal locations 
Hmm. So if you're into stamp collecting, like, I mean, like, uh, people know what I mean by stamps if they're stampers. Uh, <laughs> they're not yeah, like I... actual like mail stamps, but they're like ink stamps that you oh, go okay. in. They have like the almost, date on there. Almost like on a, like a passport. It's that they're like passports. Yeah. So you put them in your passport. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. I didn't know about that. Yeah, I didn't either until I started working at a refuge. And I was like, man, this is some cool stuff. Yeah, I want to get a passport I would been, now. I would have been doing that the whole time. If I yeah, I would have been too. Because that but was yeah, like the coolest cool thing when I got my passport, seeing like the, the stamps mm-hmm. accumulate. I think they call it a passport too. It's like your huh. national park passport. Yeah. And so also, every, you don't use your actual pass, like your international passport. You have a different one? No, I think you buy it. It's oh, like okay. 20 bucks. And it's just like, it tells you all of the national parks, all of the fish and wildlife refuges, they break it up into sections. I bet you a lot of people that go to visit national Mm -hmm. parks, they probably know about that. They do. Because our visitor center has been closed, we get a lot of people requesting that they were here on this date. Can we send them their stamps so they can put it in their passports? Mm, Yeah. Like people like really like it. So that is an option. Just ask them for a stamp. They're more than likely to do it. So yeah, uh, now in the age of COVID, it's a little more difficult to be doing these kinds of road trips. So definitely be cautious and respectful of whatever community you're in and their whatever they decided to do with this Mm -hmm. pandemic. Um, That's my take on everything is wherever I go, I'm generally going to just learn and respect the customs of that region. Mm -hmm. That's just, that's my own personal opinion on that. Oh yeah, because um, we yeah yeah. Be sure to go and leave what your answers were to the to that guess in the beginning of the show on our Instagram page, which is Indian Science Show, or you could go to send us an email at Indian Science Show at gmail dot com. Whatever you feel like, Facebook. We even have Twitter. So yes. yeah, that's we pretty much hit everything. I, there's all I mean, there's so much we could talk about more about the science of how they figured all this out, and there's. Yeah, I hope this was just a glaciers too that we didn't talk about. Yeah, I hope this was just a good base learning for you to maybe want to delve deeper in for yourself. Mm, yes, because it is a very great, interesting event that really redefined an ecosystem. So, yeah, and created a whole. I mean, mm-hmm. multiple lots of ecosystems. It's pretty nuts. So, yeah, definitely check it out if you're more interested. And if you ever find yourself in the Northwest, check them out. Check out that site and follow along. I love doing that stuff. Follow, I do too. With yeah. apps and apps are so cool. <laughs> but they're freaking addicting. <laughs> Anyways, well, thanks for joining oh, us today, everybody. Thanks for joining on my favorite geological event. Yes, I and, appreciate it. And my second favorite. Well, eventually, we'll get to my first favorite, which is mm-hmm. yellow. has to do with Yellowstone. I'm sure many of you listeners can guess what that is, but we'll have, we'll talk about that again on another day, another episode of the Indian science show. Thanks for joining us, everyone. If you like the episode, make sure you go to our iTunes page and you leave us a review. Yes. Give us a like. Yes. And five stars. Five stars. Just because, five stars. Just because you, you want to. If you don't like iTunes, you can also follow us on our social media pages. Oh, yeah. And you can drop a comment or leave a review on there, too. Yep. Mm-hmm. And we also have a website. Yes, we do. <laughs> and it's a really cool one called 
indianscienceshow.wordpress.com. But if you'd like to just access our site directly from the place that hosts it, it's the same thing, but indianscienceshow.podient.co. We would love to hear from you guys. Yeah. And Indian Science Show is spelled N-D-N-S-C-I-E-N-C-E-S-H-O-W.wordpress.com. Thank you for lending us your ears. And now you should go use your fingers and your eyes to go leave us a review. Yes. (laughs) 